Hello once again, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and I'm so enjoying my role as host of the Heroes in Our Midst podcast. The stories we have come across are so incredibly inspiring and real. It has been our pleasure to share them with you. If this is your first listen, I sure hope you'll like it. Subscribe to hear more and follow us whenever you can and wherever you can. Today's guest is once again truly a hero, inside and out. His name is Tim McIsaac. Tim is a swimmer and completely blind. And he is quite possibly one of Manitoba's greatest athletes of all time. My guess is you might sort of, kind of recognize his name, but do you really know who he is and what he's done? Well, let me tell you. Over his career, Tim McIsaac collected 14 gold, four silver, and five bronze Paralympic medals. He also dominated the World Games, racing to five gold medals, four silver, and eight bronze from 1979 to 1986. In fact, when I sat down with him in early spring of 2020, he had just been named one of the top 32 athletes in Manitoba history by the Winnipeg Free Press. And in the voting process, to find our very top athlete, he was up against who some would put in the legends category. So I figured I'd let Tim tell us about the process, and never mind about being on such a list in the first place. I didn't even know about it. The way I found out was my sister texted me at like nine o'clock on a Saturday morning and said, I just got a text from another friend of, she'd gotten a text from another friend of hers. And she said like, what are you nominated for? And I'm like, I don't know. So she says, well, I'll text her back. And she texts me back five minutes later. And she said, I'm trying to get a hold of Danielle, but I can't get a hold of her. So I'm trying to text two other people. I know they get the paper and I'll find out from them. And in the meantime, I thought, well, I'll phone my mom because she gets the paper. So I phone and she's like, yeah, help choose, you know, Manitoba's top athlete or something. But like, I still didn't really understand it. And then like later we went online and we saw how he'd set this thing up and he was doing it like a, a, an NCAA tournament bracket, you know, for the people that know what that looks like. And, you know, just to give people kind of something to do and something to talk about because there's like no sports. So I'm thinking like, you know, I'm looking at all the people that are in there, the other names of people. And I'm like, how did I get into this? So anyway, I I was in there and um, I thought, well, you know, it was really great to get picked. But there's all these, you know, professional people and whatnot in here. And I'm just happy to be here and I'll, you know, I'll last a week. And then, you know, that'll be that probably. So the first week I was matched up with Jennifer Botterill, you know, from former uh, Canadian women's Olympic uh, hockey player. Uh, well, still, I guess, but retired. And somehow we, I managed to, to get, you know, more votes than she did in the first week. And then my sister, the same one that texted me and said, what are you nominated for? She said, oh, my God, now you're up against Cindy Clausen. And I thought, okay, well, this is really going to be it now. <laughs> Well, I don't know, the next day came and I, you know, every day you kind of check, you know, leading, 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 and, you know, all of a sudden it's over and I win. And it's like, okay, now this is getting serious because now there's suddenly only eight people left. And then the guy wrote an article about how surprising it was and what an upset he thought it was that I had, had you know, taken out Cindy Clausen out of this and... And then uh, he'd ex- he kind of expected her to win the whole thing. And he thought, you know, but she'd have a hard time getting past, you know, Clara Hughes. And um, so, of course, now I'm in the, the top of my bracket, which is, you know, former Olympians. And I'm up against Clara Hughes. And so it starts and I'm ahead a little bit and, I'm, and then I'm behind. I'm thinking, well, now I, this really, you know, probably has to end like soon. And I'm behind 
on Friday night and Saturday, and I'm kind of resigned to like, okay, it's 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 done now. And uh, so then Sunday morning we wake up and I'm ahead and I'm ahead all the way till voting was going from Thursday, Fridays at noon till Thursdays at noon. So Wednesday night I'm still leading, still lead, 10 o'clock at night and now I'm behind. And I kind of stayed there and finished there. Little did I know that I had the most votes overall, second to only Clara, out of all the eight people who were left. If I'd have been in any other category, I probably would still be going. But anyway, it is it is what it is. And and you know, um, like I like I said to Taylor Allen from the Free Press, I said, you know, I can't believe I got this far. It's a long time ago that I competed. Um, I don't have the notoriety that, you know, a Jonathan Taves who plays in the NHL does. Um, I, I, I've not ever been asked to be the face of a, a major, you know, corporate, um, you know, community citizenship type campaign like Bell Let's Talk, like, you know, Clara has. And I haven't, um, you know, been inducted into Canada Sports Hall of Fame or won the Lou Marsh Trophy the way Cindy has. And yet, you know, I managed to get that far and, you know, Everybody that went past that point, with the exception, I guess, of Clara, was a professional athlete, and one was a bomber, one was a jet. The way it was set up, it was going to be a bomber and a jet in the final anyway, really. And uh, now it's looking, as we, as we speak, it's the last week, and, and Clara, I, I understand, is, is leading Dale Howarchuk. So she's probably going to win the whole thing, so now at least I get to say that I lost to the ultimate winner of the whole thing, too. But I didn't. I didn't think I would last three rounds. You yeah. know. So. Yeah. Well, you know, Tim. In that conversation, you talk about the Claras, the Cindys, the Dale Howard Chucks, and and someone listening right now is still saying, "Yeah, well, who, who is this Tim McIsaac guy?" Tim, you are a blind Paralympic swimming legend. Really, fourteen gold medals alone. Even if that's all you did, but there was so much more to that. Um, from from back in those days, Tim, that's the glorious sort of what we see and what now I can easily read that. I can read about those medals and I can know what you accomplished that way on the outside. But tell us about Tim McIsaac on the inside. Uh, tell us about your beginnings. You know, where did you grow up and how did you get into swimming and uh, especially, you know... Um, being a blind swimmer, some of us are already thinking, how do you even begin to do that? Tell us your beginning. Well, I was born in Winnipeg. My parents are originally from Flin Flon, Manitoba, and they moved here because um, my grandfather started a family business. And then when he passed away, my uncle, my dad's older brother, took over the company and moved it to Winnipeg. And my dad was working for the company. So when my parents got married, they moved to Winnipeg. So I was born in Winnipeg. And I grew up, you know, of course, most of my early, you know, preschool years in Winnipeg. Uh, Went to kindergarten in Winnipeg. And actually, it was kind of funny. I remember, you know, picking up books and pretending to read them and stuff and thinking I was just like all the other kids that I played with on the street, you know. And thinking I just couldn't read them because I didn't know how to read. I didn't realize, you know, I couldn't read them because I couldn't see them. And I mean, I guess I kind of knew I was sort of different somehow, but like not, not really. And then one night, you know, my mom actually had to explain to me that I was blind. And because I was blind, I was going to have to go to a different school than everybody else. And I thought, oh, that's no big deal either. And then my mom was, well, yeah, but yeah, like you have to sleep there. You're going to have to stay there like all the time. At first, I didn't really think much of it. And as the time got closer, I got really actually kind of excited about going. (laughs) And then when I got there, the next day and realized what it was like being away from home it was like oh my god I, gotta, I don't like this it was very institutional it was um you know 
compared to what I was used to being at home, you know, and looked after kind of just by my mom and having her attention, it was pretty harsh. You know, there were three adults for 30 kids and they, you know, they, they cared, but I mean, you're not their kid. Right. And I mean, I remember, and then, you know, even before that, like my mom has told me a few times about how when I was first born, she took me to a pediatrician and he said, you know, just put him into an institution because he's not going to be able to do anything or, you know, have a life or anything like that. And my mom was like 21 years old at the time and she'd only gone to grade 10 in school because she came from, you know, a Ukrainian family where, you know, the traditions kind of are, I think, and the family values kind of are, if the family needs help, you know, if you're the oldest child, you and girl in particular you you pitch in to to help the family so you know she looked after her siblings when her parents went to work she got a job herself to help support the family so when you think about sort of the level of education she had and coming from like a really small town you know it probably would have been really easy for her to submit to authority and say well like this is my lot in life and done whatever with me but she went home and cried, and she had a good relationship with my mother and her, her mother-in-law, my dad's mom. And my 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 dad's mom says, "Well, take her to my doctor and let's see what he says." And he said, "Well, he's just like any other kid. Just take him home and do with him what you'd do with any other kid." And the fact that he can't see. But back then, they sent us away to school because they didn't integrate kids the way they do now. That didn't start till I was in about grade seven. So I went there for grade one all the way up to grade 11. So I was away from home essentially 10 months out of the year in Brantford, Ontario, you know, famous for Wayne Gretzky and the invention of the telephone, not necessarily for the W. Ross McDonald School where I went, (laughs) formerly the Ontario School for the Blind. Before that, the Ontario Institute for the Blind. I mean, they they gradually, I guess, tried to make it a little bit more, you know. Yeah, a little kinder. So so grade one, so like six years old, you were away from home. I was away from home, yeah incredible so okay so you were there for all your schools did you come home in summers and that did you still have a lot of connection I came home at summertime and Christmas time Mm -hmm. and and spring break and and Easter some of those trips in the beginning at least you know your parents had to pay for because the government didn't the government would pay for Christmas and summer but they wouldn't pay for so I knew kids who you know came from like in addition to Manitoba kids there were Saskatchewan kids and Alberta kids there and some of them, when they went back to school after Christmas, they didn't go home again till June. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, 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 Tim, where did swimming fit into this story? Did it start even at that point yet? Well, par- kind of. Um, the thing that happened was while I was there, when I first got there, the main school building was like 100 years old already. Mm-hmm. It had been built in like the 1870s. So when I was, while I was there they began to plan for and ultimately built a new main school building which opened when I was in grade seven and part of the amenities of that new school was a was a pool and they decided they were going to start a swim team there and I had been done fair bit of swimming you know I swam my my uncle's house had a pool in the backyard which ultimately became my parents house when my uncle got some other business opportunities and moved down with his family to Toronto um, so then we moved there and so I swam a lot in the summertime, just in the backyard, you know, recreationally sure. and in grade five and six at school, they took us to the Y for lessons every Friday afternoon. And I kind of felt like I excelled at it and I kind of felt like I was better at it than I was at a lot of other sports. And I kind of felt like I was better at it than a lot of other kids were yeah. compared to how I was in other sports that, that we all did. 
So when they decided to do that, I thought I'm going to get into this because I, you know, I really liked it and I felt like I could have success with it. And I, as it turned out, I was probably one of the the faster, you know, kids on the team. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then, um, I think when I was in finishing grade 10, I decided I wanted to keep swimming for the summer to kind of stay in shape and stuff. So we actually got my, my, my mom phoned the Pan Am pool, got in touch with what was then the Cardinal swim club. And they let me swim with them for the summer. So I swam for for them with the summer. And I could have come back to Winnipeg to go to high school that year. And looking back now, should have. But I didn't. So I went back and did grade 11 in, in Ontario. And then I finally decided I was going to come back because I needed to do um, at least one year of high school, I thought, in a regular high school that wasn't kind of designed for me. Right. So that, to help me make a smoother transition to, you know, university, because I planned to go to university. I didn't know what for, but I figured I was <laughs> going to do something after high school. So um, I did that, and then I went back to Brantford for the, the year and made the first Paralympic team in Toronto in 1976. I won a gold, two silver, and two bronze there. I'd already been to the Ontario Provincial Games twice, and then they had the first Canada Games, which was a selection for the Olympics in Cambridge, Ontario. And I came home, and I found a guy to train with at the Y for a month and a half. But I wasn't training like you would with a real club. We only swam like maybe three times a week or something. So if I'd have been able to train for the first Olympics I went to the way I did later, I, you know, I mean, I did okay, but I would have done like a lot better if I, but, uh, no, these are your standards, Tim. You did. Okay. You already told me you got a gold and a bronze. Yeah. For starting. Yeah. You know, for starting, but I mean, as, as time went on, of course it became, you know, more, more competitive all the time. Right. Sure. But, um, so then when I came back, I mean, I was probably going to go back to the Cardinals again, but the thing was my sister had a friend who swam with the St. James Seals, and there was another family on the street who, had, who swam with the Seals, and they all carpooled. So my sister decided she wanted to swim too. So my mom thought, well, maybe this is better. We can carpool. If, we, if I go to the Cardinals, like they're going to be driving me out back and forth all the time. So we called them and they, they took me on and then it just like took off from there. I got into the, I started with the SEALs in September of 1976. By that time I was here back home, living full time at home, going to St. Paul's High School. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest is history as they say, I guess. Now, so talk to me about swimming with a, a regular club, like a regular swim team, and, and actually swimming, period, without being able to see. How, what's the process? How did you, I mean, I think that would be a question a lot of people are wondering. How do you see the wall? How do you know when, right? All of that. Well, when I started, we just I just touch turned, which is actually what I do now with my master's club. I don't get tapped anymore. And then, and then one day, my coach thought that I could learn how to flip turn. They were always trying to you know help me be the best I could be, right? And they thought it was good for the other kids to have me around. They thought it was a good experience for them to, that it would help them, you know, develop empathy and uh, you know not just for me, but if, I think they thought if they could help them to have to be considerate of me and empathetic toward me that maybe they would start to do it towards other the other teammates and other people mm-hmm. and that was a benefit that they saw I guess me being there gave to the rest of the the team mm-hmm. and I got along with everybody fine um you know uh they learned how to communicate with me so I'd know which way the circle was going to go in the lane and then one day my coach thought we were going to teach me how to flip turn. So he got a couple of the kids to get in the water with me and move my body through the motions of what a flip turn was like. And then they just got me to 
try to copy it like on my own, right? right? So eventually I did learn it and it's like, okay, well now, because the whole idea is you want to flip and push off with your feet. You don't touch with your hand because in freestyle you don't have to. Okay. As long as you touch the wall, that's good enough. So you want to be touching on the way back, not coming in. And so he started using kickboards to touch me on the head with. And then I got faster and he saw these people. We, we used to swim at the Civic Center on Ness. So there was a gym there, and they, these kids one day were playing this, like, polo game. Like, it had styrofoam bat things, like a plastic stick with a styrofoam mallet on the end of it, and they were hitting a ball. And he got the idea that this thing would make a great thing to tap blind swimmers on the head with. Okay. So he got one, and we started using it, and then eventually he had to go and get, like, a piece of three-quarter-inch pipe take the handle off and stick the the pipe in it so that it was like a telescope to make it longer because the faster you can go the further out you need to get tapped right because the, it's like shooting a bird in the air you, you don't shoot where you, it is you shoot where it's going to be by by the time the shot gets there so like they have to tap me on the head far enough out that i'm going to start my turn right. as i'm coming in because I'm, as i'm turning i've still got momentum coming into the wall right yep. and you and you got to you got to be able to know how close i need to be so that when i can turn i can get my feet on the wall and get a good push off like going back the other way again so that's how it started and then they put on clinics to teach everybody else how to do it we went the first time we did it was at the world's in stoke manville england in 1979 and you should have seen people running to grab their rule book as well there was nothing that said you couldn't yeah. right and uh the next year we're in holland and people had devices of every shape size and description there was one poor i don't know what country they were but they'd taken a broomstick and stuck a nerf ball on the end of it well the problem with a nerf ball is it'll take on water right right can you imagine at the four at the end of a 400 im how heavy that would have been for the person that's standing at the end tapping their swimmer to turn yes so um but they 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 put a video together we taught uh everybody how to do it um because of that i actually nominated my audrey my the wife part of the husband and wife team that coached me for a woman of distinction ymca award and i think it was like 1989 or 90 or something and she won she won the one for sport and recreation nice. or something like it was nice. yeah so that was great yeah yeah. But that's that's kind of how it got going, and then, like I say before, you know, the rest is history. We just we just kept on going, and yeah. uh, three Olympics, and yeah. you know, two World Championships, and a bunch of nationals, and a couple invitational meets overseas. You know, uh, I I stayed with them from well, I guess I started in '76, and I and I finished in uh, like 1990. And I kind of made a brief comeback and had some ideas about going to Barcelona, but I ended up not doing that. Okay. So. Okay. So you sort of called it a career, at least for in the pool. Yeah. So Tim, tell me about being a Paralympian and even with this Manitoba's greatest athlete of all time. Now, were you the only Paralympian in the 32? I was. Yeah. Yeah. So. I was a Paralympian, so I was the only athlete with a disability. Okay. Now, do you think the view on Paralympians versus Olympians, is that getting better? Are we getting better at, at, at that? Are you happy with how things are? Or do you always strive to raise awareness for Paralympics and all that? Well, I think there's still a gap. Yeah. I think there's still a lag. I don't think it's what it was when I was competing, but, it's, mm -hmm. but it still exists, mm -hmm. I think. I think there are still people who think somehow that... Um, a couple, you know, and it, it's kind of like, you know, the elephant in the room, right? Like people, it's, you can think it, but don't say it. Yeah. So I think, I think there are people who think that somehow it's just kind of maybe recreational, that it's not really that serious. Yeah. I don't think 
everybody thinks that, but I think some people do. Um, and I think also there are people who think that, um, you know, it's, it's not that tough to win a medal in the Paralympics because there are so many different classifications. Because even, for example, within sort of vision impaired, yeah. there are three classifications depending on how much vision you have. And so when you break it down that much, sometimes you do end up with maybe smaller numbers than what you would have, say, in like an able body competition. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that causes it to lose credibility in the eyes of some people too. I, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in it. But I mean, I think, I think the reality is that um, because, uh, you know, those perceptions are out there and there are reasons for why they're out there and, you know, gradually they're being dispelled. You know, I mean, I think it, it, it's like everything else, right? Like if you look at what's happening right now with, um, you know, civil rights around racial equality, yeah. there's, there, there's, there eventually, if there hasn't been already, will be a tipping point where the public will say, we've kind of gotten there with, you know, um, LGBTQ, I think, stuff. We've kind of now gotten there with race stuff. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that because of all the, the opening up about, um, equality for people based around, you know, gender identity, sexual orientation and race, that that will, that will, you know, start to improve dialogue around equality for people with disabilities because, you know, disability transcends all those other things that have historically caused people to be marginalized right for sure so for sure and you've lived it tim i mean you've uh, you've trained like any other athlete so i mean hearing it from you is what's so powerful i think for us well and the thing that does concern me a little bit is um you know i have had occasion in the last couple of years i was on the board of canadian blind sports for a while and i always said when i was younger you know the day will come you know when i started i wasn't considered a paralymp an olympian i i we, we i was one of the first athletes with a disability to get carded through the amateur athlete assistance program mm. but I was carded as a blind athlete not as a swimmer uh -huh. and so because I was carded as a blind athlete I was con my sport was considered non-olympic so the criteria to get carded was higher more stringent mm -hmm. and 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 the 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 amount of support was was less um I don't know how that works now whether I would be carded as a swimmer if I were you know today blind swimming I, th I think so um, I think we finally have gotten past that. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So there is still Canadian Blind Sports Association, but it only really governs goalball, which is a sport that specifically blind people play. It's like wheelchair athletes playing murder ball. It's a sport sure. that's created specifically for people with, with a disability, that, that particular disability. So because swimming and track and you know, athletics have been absorbed by the, the sports governing bodies and you know p blind swimmers and athletes are you know not considered based on their disability their sports not governed by the disability anymore it's governed by their actual sport that they're doing mm -hmm. um you know cbsa now really is only responsible for goalball but i was talking to um the lady who's the executive director there a couple of years ago when i was on the board and she said that one thing that she sees she's the technical director for swimming now for the whole um, ipc you know, international paralympic committee and she's really noticed a, a drop-off in the number of participants in the Paralympics in some of what, for a lack of a better word, I would refer to as the lower classifications. So the classifications where the level of impairment is greater, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, if you're, if you're an S, 
11, for example, swimming, that means you're totally blind. If you're an S12, you're sort of somewhere between nothing and 5% vision. And if you're a 13, you're between 5% and 10%. I think that's how it works now. We used to call it B1, B2, B3. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've changed it. But anyway, so that kind of concerns me a little bit that, you know, some of the kids that have more severe, you know, or profound um, impairments like me, totally blind, aren't maybe getting the the kind of opportunities that I got. And, you know, I think it's important to stress that, you know, I was really lucky. Um, I, I found a small club with um, a couple who were um, open-minded and willing to try things. And um, really, I guess when they saw, you know, my desire, they really invested, you know, heavily in me. And, uh, but that doesn't mean it could have happened just anywhere else. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'm, and we're talking about heroes in our midst, and we're, you know, the heroism of what you did, and, and uh, being away from home, and and doing your swimming as a blind athlete, and and all of this. But the people along the way, like you, you know, even just you saying that, how your coaches took the time. I mean, they could have just said, no, we don't do that, but they didn't. And the sad truth is that if I were to go to nine out of ten, or maybe even like uh, uh, nine out of or one out of twenty other other you know settings that would be the case. Yeah, right, exactly. Even today, that would be the case. Right, right. So you, really, your path was almost like it was meant to be. It was meant to be. I think so, yeah. You know what, let's let's talk a little bit about the swimming. And, and in your article in the Free Press, you said it was kind of like I could see. Yeah. The pool was one place out of all places I went in the world where my blindness was the least limiting to me. Some of us might feel like because we can see and we don't know what that means. Um, explain that. Like, because there were still elements that would be rather disconcerting in a pool of water if you can't see. So explain that for us. I, I, I maybe didn't quite say that right. Um, I mean, that's what I said, but I, it probably could be more clear. Um, I think I think what I probably should have said and what I would say now is that when I swam, I felt like the, my blindness was less limiting to me in the water than it probably was in pretty much every other aspect of my life. You know, I didn't have to worry. I could try to see, I could really try to see, challenge myself to see like how fast I could really go because I had the support of people tapping me on the head and practice and stuff. And, and, and I wish now that I had kind of focused more on that looking back and perhaps not so much on some of the more extrinsic stuff like rewards and attention and, and that kind of thing, because that, that really can provoke and did provoke for me a lot of anxiety that I probably wasn't even as aware of back then as I am now, you know, yeah. I know you're an Olympian too. We, we have lots of do-overs, don't we? <laughs> yeah. But there's no sense regretting it now. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. So um, after all the medals and all the swimming and all the learning and and all that you did, um, transitioning out of sport for a Paralympian, you're right. We're both Olympians and and in this Heroes in Our Midst, we're talking to uh, a number of Olympic athletes. Well, we all know there's a certain transition into real life and it can be difficult for every Olympian. You know, you're put on some somewhat of a pedestal, some more than others, of course, based on their results, but certainly you were. Uh, one of the best in the world at, at your sport. Um, what was the transition like for you coming out of your sport and into uh, the real world? Yeah, it was it was tough. Um, I think I think one of the things that saves us sometimes from perhaps experiencing more psychological trauma than we do is ignorance, mm-hmm. because when you're in it and living it, you don't necessarily feel it. 
and you don't necessarily think about it because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's only after that you kind of go like, oh my, like you're, you're kind of proud of yourself for surviving it. But at the same time, it's like, if I knew what I now, then what I know now, I would sure do it a lot different. I get, I, I, I kind of looking back feel like, um, and I don't really know what it's like. I, 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 I assume that, you know, were I able to accomplish as an able-bodied athlete what I accomplished as a, as a blind athlete, I probably would have had, you know, lots of endorsements and probably, you know, have, you know, not be working right now maybe, you know. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Michael Phelps is still probably living off of his exploits. Um, but, of course, that, that didn't happen for me. I didn't get offered a bunch of endorsements. I didn't get the chance to be, you know, the face of a – of a corporate, you know, um, community corporate citizenship thing, you know, bell let's talk like, like, like Clara Hughes is, um, sadly, you know, I think we're still at a place where in sport as in life, you know, those, those opportunities just don't come the way of a person with a disability, unless you're somebody like Benoit Hewitt, who, you know, essentially he's got like some problems with his like lower limbs, but I mean, from the knees up, he's, he's able-bodied, right? And he can look normal and whatever. And um, I know he had opportunities with like Visa Canada and stuff like that. But I mean, uh, he's probably an exception that proves the rule even today. And, and I mean, I was 30 years ago. So we think about, you know, how we've progressed in terms of our thinking around inclusion, you know, even from the late 80s till now. Nevertheless, when I retired, I expected that I would have, you know, a leg up and have an easier time finding a job and an easier time, you know, progressing through a career and maybe get the same type of mentorship on the job from an employer that I had in the pool for my coaches. And none of that really ever happened, you know, even working for the CNIB, that didn't, that didn't happen. And and uh, so, you know, but I, I survived. I've been able to maintain some kind of employment relationship for most of my rework- working life, um, except for a few gaps here and there. Um, but I, up until the time I started working for the government, I really, you know, was probably stuck in jobs where I was, you know, to be, to be honest, underemployed. I wasn't working commanding a, a, a compensation that was combined with what I was capable of intellectually or at, at what my education, you know, would qualify me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough. But when you think about the fact that um, in spite of their best efforts, you know, the blind, the, the most blind people are unemployed. The, 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 the unemployment rate for blind people is, you know, 70% pretty much most of the time. And that doesn't change. You know, it stays pretty consistent, even like across, you know, times when the economy is good mm-hmm. and times when it's bad, like now because of, you know, COVID-19, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, I've kind of tried to con- tell myself, you know, you're lucky, especially now I'm lucky. I have a, a decent job. I mean, it, but it took me until I was almost, you know, 50 years old to get into a, a you know what I would consider a decent position that kind of where my education and my um, prior work experience actually complemented one another and I was able to get into something that reflected what I was you know actually capable of yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, you went on to study um, and, and you obtained your master's uh, in arts and disability studies at the University of Manitoba. Is that now what you're talking about? Is that what you delve into and what you work with? Well, partially. Um, long time ago, I wanted to be a physiotherapist mm -hmm. and that didn't work out. I was going to go to England to study physiotherapy and that didn't work out. So um, I came home from the Paralympics in 1980 and it was the, the, my plan actually had been I was going to I was going to go and do the the entrance tests for the North London School of Physiotherapy which was a physiotherapy school that t trained blind people to be physiotherapists. I was going to take get accepted. I was going to go to the Paralympics in 1980. I was going to retire and I was going to go and be a physiotherapist because I would have had my Olympic experience. And then I didn't get accepted. So I went to the Paralympics. I came home. It's like now what? Mm -hmm. So I ended up going for lunch. I had a good mentor. His name was Michael Bromelo. He was one of the vision impaired consultants for the Department of Education. He looked after me in high school and we still continued our friendship after I graduated. And he said, you know, you should apply to come and work with us. We need somebody with your perspective on staff. So he told me to go talk to his boss, which I did. And the guy said, well, you know, get your education degree and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. So at that point I was in arts at University of Winnipeg. And I went and talked to the Dean of Education. I said, I want to switch into education. He's like, well, we've never done this before, but we'll try it. So they, they took me in. And everybody understood that the career goal was never to have me become a classroom teacher. The whole right. point was to have me get my teaching certification so that I would be eligible to work for the Department of Education and then go get my master's at San Francisco State University because that's where you had to go then over the summer for five or six years. So off I went, and he says, go get your degree. So I hear I come back. I've got my degree in my back pocket. I hear, I'm back. Well, you know, no, it's no, we, we tried this. It, it, it's not going to work. So I thought again about what to do. And by this time, I was actually, you know, I just, when, when I came back to Winnipeg, I, well, I might as well keep swimming, right? Like I'm going to school. What else am I going to do? Yeah. And then I, and I got this student grant and aid thing that paid for my university. So I had to keep swimming to pay for, you know, I think this is great. It's putting me through school now. And then I got carded. So I thought, well, I might as well do, back then they called it a pre-master's, now they call it a post-back in counseling. So maybe I could be a school counselor. So I did that, and I started looking for jobs, and, you know, the feedback I got was mostly, well, you know, without any classroom experience, you really can't be a school counselor because the teachers won't respect you. Oh, so I was up against it there, and then, you know, finally I ended up going and working for the CNIB for a few years, and then I went to Scotiabank, and I worked there for like almost 15 years. And I ended up having to leave there because they closed down the operation I was working in and there was kind of really no place else for me to go. They wanted me to move to Calgary, but our whole family was here and my son was like in the middle of high school. It was just, so they offered me a buyout. I took the buyout and left. And then I realized, you know, I don't have a, a work history and an education background that complement each other very well. So I went back to school and I thought, well, maybe I'll try and get into human resource, HR, human resources. And I took a certificate at U of M for that. And while I was doing that, I did a research project for a labor relations class I was taking about the barriers that organized labor poses for people with disabilities when it comes to getting employment. And I wanted some information and I went to somebody in the disability studies department and I talked to them. They said, you know, that would be a really good idea for a thesis. Turns out I did something totally different, but they said, why don't you come to your master's? And I went, well, I'm not doing anything. So I did. So I did my master's and, um, I wrote a, a thesis basically about sort of, you know, the whole notion of, of the workplace as a social 
you know, from a social perspective, not a functional perspective, and how blind people are perceived in the workplace and how those perceptions impair their abilities to have careers as opposed to just a job. Um, and it got me my degree. I talked to a couple people about publishing articles from it. I really didn't know how to go about that on my own. And there was a couple people that said they would help me, but we kind of never really ever got that off the ground, but whatever. I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I managed to do it and I, I still go back and read it sometimes and think, man, I wrote this. <laughs> so, but then, um, I had actually, when I was working for the bank, thought about doing my master's in counseling. Um, but then I thought, well, I'd started thinking about it when I was working at the CNIB and then I, I had left there and I was, you know, now I'm switching from working in a rehab agency to working in a business. And I'm thinking, I don't really need a counseling degree in business. So even though I'd gotten accepted, I didn't go. And then I started thinking about going back and I thought, you know, I would like to do something with kids, um, and specifically with athletes if I can, but with kids in general, because, you know, I've, I've had a lot of good opportunities in my life that, you know, don't come the way of most blind people. And it's got to do with the people I've met. And, and it's funny, you know, the, the the saying is true, unfortunately, in life, I think the rich get get richer. And, you know, one of the things I talked about in my thesis was, you know, social capital, which in business, they might call goodwill. And that's, I guess, what I was talking about before. When I quit swimming, I thought I would have a lot of social capital built up because I was a Paralympic athlete that a lot of other people's disabilities didn't possess. But when when, when, I, when swimming stopped, so did the social capital. I wasn't perceived any differently by the work world than anybody else, yeah. even though I know that that happens for able-bodied people. And it might be different now because of game plan. And I, and I really wish there had been game plan when I was, you know, back competing. And I would, if there's any athletes that are listening now that are nearing retirement or even, you know, your mid-career or early career and you have aspirations of, of being involved in high-performance competition, get, get yourself hooked up with game plan and take advantage of every resource that they offer you or that you can think of that will help you there because it's going to set you up way better for after sports, which is what exactly what it's supposed to do. So I would, I would, I would tell everybody, you know what, I wish that there'd been that when I was, was younger. And now that they've had it since 2010, you guys, you know, you deserve to be bopped on the head if you don't get up. <laughs> you don't take advantage of it. Yeah. 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 So anyhow, I ended up getting, getting that degree and I decided after, I started thinking about it more and more and more and I decided, you know, I'm going to go back and take my master's in counseling. So I reapplied, got in, and I also was doing, I got involved in an organization called Job's Daughters International, which is a, a young, a youth group, a young, an organization for young women aged 10 to 20 that teaches uh, leadership skills. And I became one of the co-international presidents and I served my year from 2016 to 2017. And it's a lot of traveling. I went to the Philippines, Australia, traveled throughout the U.S. and Canada, visiting some of the different chapters and jurisdictions of the organization. And, you know, when you go to these places, they, you know, you're, you're kind of like the emperor. They, they put you up and they take care of you. And it's, you live a rock star life. And I thought, you know, I'm going to feel, I, and I knew from having competed before that I was going to probably feel some kind of a letdown. And I thought, you know, I, I need something to sink my teeth into after this is over. And I had already had ideas about getting a counseling degree. I really didn't know what I was going to do with it. I still don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I decided that that was going to be the project. Sure. So I applied and got in 
and I did the courses and then um, I had an idea I had to do a group class last year and I had an idea to run a group for retiring Paralympic athletes and I kind of based it around some of my own experience and I pitched it to game plan they didn't have the resources to support me in it so then we decided to try CSCM and we we talked to Jeff Powell and then we Jeff talked to Adrian and Adrian loved it and then she hooked me up with Kevin Christensen who was one of her PhD students it was kind of like the way swimming with the seals went like it just went together even like a week after I she I got her to accept me to do the the help me support me with my group project my uh, program advisor in the faculty of education said to me why don't you see if you can do your practicum there I'll ask I mean they don't and I, I sent Adrian an email, and I'm thinking, oh, within 24 hours, she's, yeah, consider it done. <laughs> and then they got me connected with, with Bison Sports. You know, she ran into Gene Muller, the athletic director from the Bisons, on, of all, place, and of all places, a Winnipeg Transit bus one day. <laughs> Apparently, that's how that got going. So I'm just finishing that up now, and I still have six credit hours to go. Um, I'm hoping that I can do three of them in a second practicum, although I'm not certain about that now with, with all the uncertainty that's happening around, right. you know, sports because of COVID, you know, of course, mm-hmm. with the way it's disrupted absolutely everything. Yeah. Wow, Tim, I'm just listening to all the, the challenges you had along the way and the changes in your path. And it wasn't just one path. It wasn't, I swam and now I'm helping other, you know, kids with a disability. I'm, you know, you went through many different doors and tried this and that and, and uh, you just keep going, you keep going, and you don't seem to ever give up. And I'm sure that was born into you by some of those that you might call some of your mentors and some of your heroes. I'm going to get to some rapid fire questions with you, Tim. I would love to ask you, what is your favorite sound? My favorite sound? I'm going to say wind chimes. What is one piece of advice you want to pass along to others? Be yourself, be, be, be true to yourself, be honest with yourself. And um, actually, I think maybe more than that, like be, be resourceful. Look at, look at what you have around you um, in the way of people and the knowledge that these people have. And it could be absolutely anybody. You know, it could be somebody half your age. Everybody can teach us something and everybody knows something that we can benefit from knowing. Take advantage of of every opportunity you have to listen and learn and and learn from from other people that will help you to define yourself and help answer the questions that you need answered to help become the 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 best you you can be and the you you want to be what is your favorite failure tim probably losing my job at the cnib because I was in a place where you were kind of expected to be if you were blind and lucky enough to have a job. And I wasn't, uh, in the end, what they, what they wanted. And I was just as happy kind of not, not to be there anymore. And I wouldn't be where I am now if I'd stayed there. Describe an ordinary moment. Mm, I'm just out in the back porch chilling, listening to something on my Sirius XM radio, probably a game of some kind. And uh, I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you just quickly, and this isn't one of the questions, actually. Um, talk about your, your guide dog. He met me, he or she, I'm not even sure. He, 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 he. he met me at uh, the door, the door yeah. when I came in. Uh, talk about your relationship with your guide dog. Oh, he's wonderful. His name is Tega. I've had him for two years. He's my fourth guide dog. Um, I've gotten them all from the same school, Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind. They've all been wonderful. Um, he's a yellow lab. Uh, 
So I've had a yellow lab, a golden retriever, and then they they also have started, you know, crossbreeding the the yellows with the goldens. Okay. So I, I've had two of those, <laughs> and um, they're the best. I although Tega's Tega's pretty amazing, mm. um, he, and he knows we're talking about him because he's just walking by us now. Here he comes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, I've I've had him for for two years, and he's loved everywhere we go. He has the whole run of the floor at the office, and. There are people that have a schedule and they have a list of people that take them out every day for walks. And um, everybody just thinks how, you know, therapeutic it is. I'm sure there are people who are missing them tons since we've been working at home since the sure. middle of March. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I, what else can you say? Yeah. Uh, it, it, I should have had a dog long before I decided to get one. It really opens up your world. And a special relationship for for sure. Speaking of relationships, we're going to end by asking this question. Who are two or three people who influenced you and how did they impact your life? Uh, Well, I think my mom did because, I mean, had she accepted the advice of the first doctor she took me to, I know my life would be a lot different. And she really did do her best to keep me as involved in the family as she could when I was away at school and has supported me ever since with whatever I've wanted to do. Uh, Wilf and Audrey Strom, of course, who coached me because I think, you know, swimming has really shaped me and given me the kind of perspective that I've needed to have in terms of resilience and um, tenacity and resolve to, to kind of keep going when things have probably not really been too terribly easy sometimes. And the, the last one I would say is, is my wife, Heather. It's because of her that I got involved in things like Job's Daughters because uh, – you know, she comes from a Masonic family family, so I'm a Freemason, and I belong to Scottish Rite and Shriners, uh, which is a really cool way to give back to disabled kids, too. And, uh, I, you know, she she's the one that convinced me to get involved in, you know, um, community things. When, when, when we met, um, I casually mentioned to her one day that I had an opportunity to join a committee with the city of Winnipeg to advise the city of Winnipeg around disability issues. And she's like, you know, you should be doing that. And I had done stuff before, you know, I was, I was on the board of the Manitoba Blind Sports Association. I was the athletes rep for C- Canadian Blind Sports Association for a couple of years. But, you know, beyond that, I really hadn't done like a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, she encouraged me to do that. She encouraged me to get involved in the Masons. And then we, you know, we, we, then from there, I got involved with Job's Daughters. I just kind of got really interested in the running of it and the business side of it and the program side of it. And so I ended up, like I said, just three years ago, ultimately be having a year where I spent a year as one of the, the co-international presidents. It's an organization that probably has about 10,000 youth members, 10,000 adult volunteers, and it operates in five countries. I think I've learned a lot through the kind of volunteer things I've done that's helped me at work because I've actually been able to do more in volunteer settings than I think I've been able to do in a lot of the employment settings that I've been in. And it's helped because there's lots of times when, you know, work has not exactly been particularly um, stimulating. And I actually, um, I did volunteer and still do, although I haven't been involved much. I volunteer with a, with a program called Career Connect, which is joint between the CNIB and the American Foundation for the Blind in the U.S. And I had a call from a, a, a young person one time who had a job and was saying they were bored in their job and didn't feel like they were challenged enough or given enough to do whatever. And I said, find things outside of your job that you can volunteer with that will complement your interests 
and help you develop the kinds of skills you want to develop. And I think I've been lucky with getting invo- involved in volunteerism that I that I've been able to do that. And if it wouldn't been for, have been for the encouragement of Heather, that probably never would have happened. Amazing. Influential people in your life. Well, you are influential in many of our lives, Tim. Tim, even more so, you've sort of come back onto the scene for many of us. So thank you for joining us on Heroes in Our Midst. Thanks for having me. So that is Tim McIsaac, multiple, multiple Paralympic medalist and world champion five times over, all in the water where, as he put it, was where he felt like his blindness was less limiting to him than it probably was in pretty much every other aspect of his life. He felt at home there, and his disability didn't stop him. In fact, on the water, he had the freedom to go as hard as he could. Tim, all the best as you continue to navigate life after swimming and out of the pool. Thank you for sharing your challenges and your story. Thank you for your courage to talk about what Paralympians face after their careers in sport are done and what needs to continue to change and improve in the world around us. You truly are a hero in our midst. If you have liked what you heard today, like us, follow us, subscribe to hear more. There are heroes all around us that can help us live our best life. And now you know where to find them.